Shalom, this is Rabbi Tama Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Parashah number 15, Bo, which is translated as Go, and this is in Shemot, uh, Exodus 10.1 through 13.16. If you have any questions or comments about this Parashah or would like me to address some other issues uh, for further commentary, please go to our website at rabdavis.org and uh, click on uh, Ask the Rabbi link and post your information there and I'll be happy to get back with you. Alright, <clears throat> the creation of something from nothing is described in detail in the book of Genesis. But the beginning of the year for humankind is defined in our Padashah in chapter 12, 1 and forward. Quote, Adonai spoke to Moshe and Aharon in the land of Egypt. He said, you are to begin your calendar with this month. It will be the first month of the year for you. Unquote. The question is, what month? How do we know when the events described in this narrative occurred? There are four new years in Israel, but the real biblical new year is as God said. In Exodus 13:4, we read, quote, You are leaving today in the month of Aviv. Unquote. We know on the tenth of the month, Aviv, each man took a lamb or kid for his family and kept it for four days until the fourteenth day of the month at which time it was to be slaughtered at dusk and eaten that night. This is in keeping with the biblical day which starts at sunset. This timing dictates matzah be eaten as commanded in 12.8 because this timing would fall to the next day which is the fifteenth of Aviv or Nisan as the month is also called. The Feast of Unleavened Bread starts after sunset on the 14th of Nisan, again consistent with God's designated festivals. Establishing the true beginning of the year is important because of man's intrusion into biblical timing. God's Talmudim, his disciples, become aware as they learn that one of Hasatan's objectives is to confuse people. And boy, aren't we seeing that today. You talk about chaos and confusion. This is a Hasatan, Satan. Changing the times and seasons is one method that has proven very effective. For example, the Catholic Church claimed the authority to change the Sabbath to Sunday, and the majority of Christians follow that arrogant move. On the other side of the aisle, rabbinic Jews follow a calendar that was manipulated to meet various agendas of the ruling authority at the time. So, looking at discoveries from Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, a calendar was found that is based on 364 days. This is important because it divides into both 4 and 7, a symmetrical kind of calendar in which significant days fall on the same weekday every year. This contrasts with the Gregorian calendar, most commonly used today, which is 365.25 days with a leap year every four years, and a lunar calendar used by the rabbinic Jewish community today, which is influenced by many celestial observations and halakhic decisions in the Oral Torah and the Talmud, for example, on such things as what to do when major events fall on Shabbat. The Qumran calendar is consistent and appears to include the beliefs of the members of the community regarding perfection and holiness. And indeed, this is the one that we follow at our synagogue. You may question the import of this information for today. If we want to follow the king's highway as we run the race to win the prize, we must follow the road signs as closely as possible. Just that it is used to take time and effort to look at maps and lay out the best route to reach our destination rather than pushing a few buttons on our GPS and assuming it will guide us correctly, 
we must look at the map God has provided, His Torah, read it and follow it. We must resist attempts by the adversary and his disciples who encourage us to take the path of least resistance and follow a route just because it's tradition or convenient. Now with this background information, we can now rest assured that the true biblical new year is Aviv or Nisan and continue our observance of the designated times of God with confidence. For seven days we're commanded to eat matzah which starts on the 15th of Aviv or Nisan. This day starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasts for seven days, taking us to the 21st of Aviv or Nisan. On the 15th around midnight, the people left with the dough wrapped and carried it on their shoulders. There was no time for leavening, so this fits in perfectly with God's command that the Pesach lamb was to be eaten with matzah, because there are three designated festivals running consecutively. I'm going to jump to Leviticus 23, where we're introduced to another biblical complexity, when to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. Now, starting at Leviticus chapter 23, 9 through 15, we read, quote, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, After you enter the land I am giving you, and you harvest its ripe crops, you are to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen. He is to wave the sheaf before Adonai, so that you will be accepted. The Kohen is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. Then in verse 15 it reads, from the day after the day of rest, that is, from the day you bring the sheaf for waving, you are to count seven full weeks until the day after the seventh week. You are to count fifty days. Then you are to present a new grain offering to Adonai. So, the question in this case is to which Shabbat does this scripture refer? Pesach is a Sabbath, which according to the Dead Sea Scrolls would be on a Tuesday. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that immediately follows Pesach is a Shabbat, a Sabbath, which will be on a Wednesday, as is the seventh day of the same feast. So this means there are three possibilities for when the Feast of First Fruits should be celebrated. Now, according to the Essene calendar, this festival falls on the first day after the quote-unquote regular Sabbath, which is on a Sunday after the day of rest, as it is written in Leviticus 23.15. The analogy in this lesson introduced in our parasha in Shemot, or Exodus, 12.1-34, and expounded upon in Leviticus 23, provides the information and validation needed to celebrate the first three festivals of God with confidence that we observe them as close to the original calendar as possible in this current time in history. God honors a humble heart that seeks to please him and follow his Torah. If there are any errors, may he correct us as he guides our path with his rod and staff, which comforts us. Our Haftarah is out of Jeremiah 46, 13-28. And this Haftarah complements our Padashah, which describes the utter subjugation of Egypt, with prophecy of another defeat that was to take place some 800 years later. Egypt was swept away by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, after a long competition for world domination. Jeremiah had another name for the king, Nebuchadnezzar, because of his eventual persecution and destruction of Israel. Jeremiah uses various similes describing Egypt's hopelessness against Babylon after making it clear that the reason for Babylon's domination is because Hashem will buffet Egypt, rendering her haughtiness hopeless against the northern conqueror. The good news at the end of this Haftarah 
is that God assures that Jacob need not worry. We need not worry. His enemies will be destroyed, although Jacob will be punished for past transgressions. God is not done with Israel yet. He is not done with Jerusalem yet. And all you do is, is need to all you need to do is read prophecy to figure out that there's going to be problems there before he returns. His punishment will be done in a measured way. He will never be destroyed, and when all his enemies are destroyed, he will survive stronger than ever. This one condition is that Jacob is told not to fear, but to serve God, because Israel's destiny is dependent on service of God. That is our main purpose in our lives. That's why I believe suicide is such a tragedy. People cutting short their lives, undervaluing their true value to God, and robbing him of his mission, completion, for that life. If people claim to be God's servants truly submit to him as their master, they can feel secure that they will emerge triumphant. This if-then concept in our Haftarah is consistent with the entirety of God's Torah regarding our expected obedience out of love to God if we want to reach the finish line victorious. Our Brit Kaddishah today, we're going to look at Revelation 8, 6, 9 uh, through and 16, 1 through 21. That's 8, 6 through 9, 12, and 16, 1 through 21. Revelation 9, 4 refers to, quote, those who have not the seal of God on their foreheads, unquote. This points us to Revelation 7, where the 144,000 are sealed with, quote, the seal of the living Elohim, unquote. In Revelation 14:1, we read that these 144,000 have, quote, his, the Lamb's, Father's name written on their foreheads, unquote. They are also described as, quote, first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, unquote. Now, in Hebrew, first fruits and firstborn are the same word. Remember that Passover is to be a sign upon one's hand and forehead, and that's in Exodus 13, 9, and 16. And that at Passover, the blood of the Lamb redeems the firstborn and protects them from the plague of the firstborn. The seal of the living God in Revelation is clearly connected to the mitzvah of Passover, the tefillin, and the mezuzah. This seems in Revelation to be contrasted with, quote, the mark of the beast, unquote. Now let's examine a related passage in Ezekiel 9. Here Yahweh sends an angelic being to set a mark upon the foreheads of men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. Then he sends six beings with slaughter weapons to kill all of those that lack this mark. The being which marked them then goes before the throne of Yahweh, takes fire, and casts it down. This, this clearly parallels 7, 1 through 8 and 8, 1 through 5. question is, what are the abominations that the marked slash sealed ones of Ezekiel are mourning about? Well, the answer is found in the previous chapter. Throughout Ezekiel's chapter 8, we're told of various abominations. The first of these involves an imagery of jealousy, an image of jealousy. Scholars generally identify this as an idol of Ashtar, also known as Ishtar. Halley's and Unger's Bible handbooks makes this identification. Ashtar, as I said, is also known as Ishtar and Easter. The next abomination involves men worshiping in the dark, and the next involved a woman weeping for Tammuz. 
Finally, we're shown men facing the east and worshiping the sun in the east. These images all point to observances in Christendom today. Roman Catholics commonly worship images of Mary, whom they call the Mother of God, a title of the goddess Easter, or Ishtar, or Ashtarte. There's a period of mourning for the dead deity, that's Lent, a time in which altar candles are renewed and the altar is dark, followed by rejoicing as is resurrection with a sunrise service. So the abominations that those marked on their foreheads are mourning about involve the observance of Easter. Check it out. Tammuz is a Sumerian god of vegetation. The worship of Tammuz by women in Jerusalem was revealed as one of the abominations in Ezekiel 8.14-15. And according to the pagan religion, Tammuz was betrayed by his lover, Ishtar, and as a result dies each autumn. The wilting of the vegetation at that time of year is seen as a sign of his death. This caused great mourning in the ancient world and was why the women in Jerusalem wept. Now the English word Easter comes from the name of the Anglo-Saxon goddess of the dawn. Now we can see this intentional, and it is intentional, mistranslation in the King James translation of the Bible. So those with the seal of God are observing Passover, and those that do not receive this seal are observing Easter. There is a very clear an undeniable relationship revealed in these passages as follows. Passover, seal of God's tefillin and mezuzahs, are literal manifestations of this seal. Easter, mark of the beast, time will tell what the actual mark is, whether it is physical, spiritual, or both. But let me remind everyone that you will have a choice as to whether or not you will take the mark of the beast. It is not the COVID vaccine. So many people tell me they believe that and they were adamant against getting it because of that. It is not the mark of the beast. However, it may be a precursor to something that might be used toward that end, but it will not be placed upon you unwillingly. You will have to make a choice, and the Torah supports that. Everyone will not take the mark of the beast, but those who do are doomed. So in this new light, let us re-examine our Torah passage. Quote, and it, Passover, shall be a sign unto you upon your hand and for a memorial between your eyes. That's in Exodus 13:9. And it, Passover, shall be a token upon your hand and for frontlets between your eyes. Unquote. The lesson to be learned is this. Passover is to be to us a memorial between our eyes, as a seal upon our foreheads, and those with this seal should mourn because of the abomination of Easter and all it represents. Shalom.